good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with the director of an interesting new documentary that offers some new perspectives on a culinary pioneer they called Chicago Home. Dueling critic Carrie Reed will join me to talk about Porchlight Music Theater's revival of the hit musical Rent. And later in the show, we'll look back at the history of the British Broadcasting Company, which officially turns 100 this week. I'll be talking with the author of a great new book on the media organization, All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. One of Chicago's most well-known culinary figures is the subject of a new documentary that's getting distribution a year after premiering at the Chicago International Film Festival. Lots of adjectives have been used to describe the late Charlie Trotter. The chef was a trailblazer who pioneered several culinary concepts that are now commonplace in some of the world's finest restaurants. He helped put Chicago's restaurant scene on the map, creating the roots for a thriving tree of chefs that run some of the city's finest establishments. But Trotter is also often remembered as a temperamental and sometimes petty figure who was difficult to work with and for. Trotter passed away in 2013, a year after he closed his acclaimed restaurant, Charlie Trotter's. He was 54. Chicago-area native and now L.A.-based filmmaker Rebecca Halpern wanted to focus on the man more than the mythology in her documentary, Love Charlie. The film offers a nuanced look at a talented chef who described himself as enigmatic. I caught up with Halpern last year ahead of the film's premiere to talk about her journey to making Love Charlie. Was there something that that sparked this idea to make a documentary about Charlie Trotter? So the producer of the film is a woman by the name of Renee Prigo. And Renee owns Oak Street Pictures. And before she got into the film and uh, documentary business, she actually had an olive oil company called Lucini. And Charlie Trotter, in the late 90s, early 2000s, started using Lucini in his kitchen and became a real champion of, of hers. And uh, she has long wanted to sort of tell his story. And because he came up pre-social media, his legacy now stands to be lost to time. You know, a lot of kids who didn't come up, you know, in the 80s and 90s have no frame of reference for Charlie Trotter because he didn't have an Instagram or, or Facebook account. So she wanted to find a way to cement his legacy. And she was able to do that with the documentary. So I was brought on to direct the film. I came from, you know, I grew up in Chicago. My mother was a food writer in the city. I moved to Los Angeles six years ago, but I really wanted to find a project that lets me pay homage to my roots and to the city that I love. And so when this opportunity came across my desk, I was like, 100%, I have to take it. Right, right. How familiar were you with Mr. Trotter and his, his restaurant coming into the project? So I never met Charlie personally. I had taken out, I couldn't afford to eat at his <laughs> restaurant. Um, 
uh, in my 20s when I was in Chicago, you know, living in the city. But my mother was a food writer. She wrote extensively about him. And I remember being like 10 years old when he first opened the restaurant and hearing about him like he was some kind of unicorn, right, that had fallen from the sky. And, you know, what he was doing at that restaurant was so revolutionary for the time period that he made his mark almost from day one. And uh, so I knew of him, but really what I knew was mostly what the media had said about him and how he was portrayed by them, usually uh, as a tyrant, an enfant terrible, someone who was a maverick and a trailblazer, but at the same time, maybe not the best person. And I, you know, when I got the opportunity to direct the documentary, the first question that I wanted to answer was, who was he really? Because I think when it comes to someone as complex as him, not a lot of people are willing to dig deep and really figure that out. Is it fair to describe Mr. Trotter as enigmatic? A hundred percent. In fact, he thought he was enigmatic himself. I mean, he knew that people had a hard time figuring him out. Uh, you'll see in the film, we have an extensive collection of postcards and letters that he wrote before he opened the restaurant, back when he was called Chuck. And he wrote a lot to Lisa Ehrlich, his first wife, about the fact that, you know, people wondered about him. Once again, he's a total enigma, he would say. And he just felt very isolated and alone. And I think that carried on through his adult life until he passed away. So having some familiarity with Charlie Trotters and, and the man behind the restaurant, did you have a good idea of the people you would need to talk to in order to get context for the different aspects of his life? So when we started production on this, it was literally day one of the COVID quarantine. And we were faced with having to make some really difficult decisions about who to include in the documentary, what stories to tell, what physically could we shoot or not shoot? Where could we travel to? We made the conscious decision to tell a much more personal story than what somebody else might tell, you know, more of a survey style documentary where you're hearing from a bunch of different people, but you never go really deep. And I think that the people that we speak to in the film really paint a very clear, sort of well-rounded picture of the person. And it's a picture that I don't think a lot of people really knew before before this film. So I'm excited to see the reaction to it. I would imagine, given what we've heard, when you reached out to some people, was there some reluctance for people to talk on the record about him? There was. There was some reluctance. I think that Charlie Trotter's life story is kind of a cautionary tale for anyone who has to throw themselves into their work a million percent in order to achieve a level of excellence that's almost unreachable. And I think Charlie's identity became so intrinsically connected to his work that when the restaurant closed, he did in some respects. And so I think for a lot of well-known chefs in particular, I think his story really resonates in an almost negative way. I think for some of the chefs who worked for him, they certainly don't have, some of them don't have fond memories 
of having worked there for him. And I think by today's standards, one could say that he was abusive towards some of his staff. But I think if you understood Charlie and you understood where he was coming from and what his end game was, I think you appreciated and respected what he was striving for every day. And so the people who were in his orbit ultimately were the people who got it. And in the film, we do include one person, Grant Ackett, who's the co-owner of Alinea, and he described his experience working for Charlie. And he had a very miserable one, and it was not a good fit for him. And yet, the story that he tells of his evolving relationship with Charlie, and later what he came to understand about him, I think it is really important because he he does appreciate the why. And that was really the whole goal in the movie anyway, was to create a little bit more empathy for Charlie Trotter. Charlie wrote a lot and tried to connect on a deep level with the people in his life before he opened the restaurant with his postcards and letters as Chuck. And then later at the restaurant with his, you know, two 10 course tasting menus that he served every night, different menus every night. He really showed people in his life that he loved them by making an effort, and not just any effort, an excellent effort. And I really wanted to remember that time, you know, back when you had to go to the post office to buy a stamp and actually think about somebody else to send them a message. Um, it's not like text messages today, which feel very disposable. He really did care, and uh, I think that that comes through in the film. As you mentioned earlier, I think for maybe a younger audience, people not as familiar with Charlie Trotter, that what that name meant to people maybe in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. What was extraordinary about Mr. Trotter's approach to the culinary arts? Charlie was the first of a generation of celebrity chefs. He exploded onto the scene in Chicago at a time before the Food Network was even around. And so the world was kind of his oyster. His sister in the film says he was the right guy at the right place at the right time. Um, but it wasn't just Chicago. It was America. He brought to the United States so many different aspects of fine dining that are commonplace today, but that had never been done before. I'll give you a couple examples. These days, you go into a fine dining restaurant, and sometimes you'll see there's a kitchen, there's a table literally in the middle of the kitchen. Charlie Trotter had the idea to bring that table to the United States, put it in his kitchen, um, where people could eat, literally surrounded by, um, you know, the theater of the chefs who were cooking. Um, he was the first to sort of take vegetarianism and really make it a centerpiece of his work, building on what Alice Waters had started to do at Chez Panisse. But I think the thing that Charlie stands out for the most is his food photography that he used in his cookbooks. He was revolutionary in terms of how he photographed his food. He got up into the food, very personal, very intimate. He really made it, he used a kind of style of photography that's very similar to some of the food porn that you see today. And I think he did for cookbooks what Chef's Table on Netflix does for video content, which was shoot it in a whole new modern way that kind of shaped the conversation around that. You know, Charlie was also best friends with Emeril Lagasse. And it was very interesting to see Emeril rise up 
through uh, television and the, food, the beginning of the Food Network. But that really wasn't Charlie's road. Charlie was an intellectual. He was very well read, despite being dyslexic. And he found a way through books to really sort of put himself, his cooking, and Chicago on the culinary map and make it the mecca that it is today. Does he maybe not get the, the credit he deserves for some of those things? I think he gets the credit. I just think that the way the world works, he's been forgotten. In the film, Grant says, if you're not on top, you just don't matter. And for Charlie, unfortunately, I think the timing of his career was on the one hand amazing and great, but by the end of the restaurant, 2012, when it closed, he was not well. He had suffered from some health issues, which we explore in the film, and the quality of the restaurant had started to slip a little bit. And I think that, unfortunately, people took that as an opportunity to kind of crap on him in a way. And they used his downfall. They would mischaracterize what was happening to him. Granted, he did drink too much. Granted, he was very outspoken in in a (laughs) not-so-flattering, well-meaning way um, at times in the media. But it was almost as if in the last years of his life there was this kind of kindergarten playground pylon of bullying Charlie. And Anthony Bourdain said that himself. And people forgot what he did. And I think that it's important now that we remember where we all come from. Like, where does the food that we eat come from? Who was doing things, you know, like what Charlie was doing? You know, where where do our favorite chefs get their sort of repertoires from? And, and what is legacy? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with filmmaker Rebecca Halpern about her new documentary, Love, Charlie. So I enjoyed the, the whole film. One of the, the parts that was especially intriguing to me was the section where you highlight the, the Michelin rating situation. And this is a, a relatively new distinction for American chefs and restaurateurs. But it seems to me to be among the most prestigious recognitions a a chef or restaurant can receive to get a single Michelin star and then of course for that select few to be awarded three three Michelin stars this quest for three seemed to be really important to Mr. Trotter Uh, it was before he opened the restaurant he went on this epic uh, road trip through Europe where basically he ate his way through Europe's finest establishments. And in Europe at that time, in the 80s, the sort of institution that decided who was the best was Michelin Guide, which was a, it was a basically a a map book, for lack of a better phrase, um, where if you were going on a road trip, you could plot your trips, and then it would tell you where you should stop to eat. And over time, Michelin ascribed a ratings system to the restaurants that it featured in the book. So one Michelin star, two Michelin stars, or three being the best. And so for Charlie, who really sort of took the French style of dining and fine dining and really tried to make it his own, make it a, give it an American spin, he really held the three Michelin star rating as kind of the 
ultimate validation of his success. And um, it was really devastating for him to only get two Michelin stars when his protege, Grant Ackett, who's in the film, got three. And it didn't just happen one year. It happened two years in a row. And by then, Charlie was already pretty ill, uh, which, you know, I don't want to spoil the movie, but he was already uh, unwell. And so... I think the writing was on the wall, and in some respects, the Michelin ratings were kind of the nail in the coffin for him and the restaurant, unfortunately. Right. That was just really compelling. I mean, in retrospect, it can come off as kind of petty, but I can understand the passion given how many years Charlie Trotters was at the, the top level, but the, there wasn't a Michelin guide for Chicago during those years. I mean, you know, in television, there's the Emmys. In film, there's the Oscars. In food, there's the Michelin Guide. I mean, you know, James Beard Awards are wonderful and definitely right up there, and, and certainly it's um, very prestigious, but nothing eclipses the Michelin Guide. And getting the three stars and keeping the three stars for a sustained period of time is next to impossible, and frankly, it's driven a lot of very acclaimed, highly acclaimed chefs to, to either kill themselves or it's driven them to ruin. And it's a very well-known thing that the pressure that goes along with fine dining and that culture of perfection every day, day in, day out, is really, you know, unhealthy in, in some respects. I had a local restaurant critic once told me uh, Chicago is obviously different than New York City and Los Angeles in many ways, but one is that uh, our hometown celebrities that, that live here are athletes and chefs. And I think there's definitely a thriving restaurant scene in Chicago today. And diners not only know chefs' names, they, they revere them. And it, it seems to me many of the, the city's top chefs are, are connected in some way to, to Mr. Trotter. There really is kind of this uh, tree that a lot of today's top chefs really come back to, to Charlie Trotter's, right? A lot of them. In fact, I set up a Google alert for a search anytime Charlie Trotter's name comes up. And I would say that since I started the project, not a day has gone by that I haven't gotten an article in my inbox where some chef has credited their time at Charlie Trotter's for helping sort of make them who they are. And he did a lot for a lot of chefs. I mean, if you count the number of Michelin-rated chefs that have come through his restaurant, you know, Grant Ackett has had gotten three Michelin stars ever since he opened Alinea. John and Karen Shields from Smith and the Loyalists are Michelin-rated. I mean, I could keep going, but I, I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out, so right, right, right. I, won't, I won't continue with that list. But it truly is the who's who of fine dining, not just in Chicago, but in America. And in fact, Charlie had a lot of chefs who came from Europe and other countries to cook at the restaurant as well, just because I think his systems, in many respects, were best in practice and best in class. And um, they wanted to learn from the best. Right. Watching 
love Charlie, you know, you, the different people you have in the film. I was like, oh, that person worked for him. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So many people were connected to that kitchen. It's remarkable. I'll give you a little backstory uh, inside baseball on the filmmaking. You know, there was a discussion happening among the producers about how do we honor every chef that's come through Charlie's Kitchen? You know, do we do some sort of scrolling um, credits list at the end of the film that sort of pays homage to them? Because, you know, I think the other thing that we're learning about fine dining is that no single chef is an island. There is no such thing as a singular, there might be a singular personality in a kitchen, but ultimately the quality of the restaurant is dependent on the team of people that that chef you know, has in their employ. And we tried very hard to come up with this list and it just kept growing and growing <laughs> and growing to the point where we figured, you know, as much as we'd like to include everyone at the end of the day, that's the kind of thing that we hope people will go home and Google because it's certainly on the web in, you know, there's plenty of, of articles and things and information for people to find there. Right. I'm in my mid-30s, so I came up at this time where there was this acceptance of kind of the, the great celebrity chef as this perfectionist who could treat his staff maybe harshly in the name of creating and serving tremendous food. And there was like Gordon Ramsay had a TV show when I was probably in high school. and But I feel like there's a, a greater awareness of, of high-profile kitchens and how they operate and the behavior of executive chefs today. Do you think, and this is just your opinion, do you think Mr. Trotter would have been able to operate in today's climate? I think he would have been able to operate. I think he would have been faced with even more troubles from uh, younger chefs who um, are of a different generation and have a different level of tolerance in terms of how they'll be treated and what they'd be willing to do. I mean, you started to see that Charlie was getting into trouble for doing things like making chefs work overtime without paying them um, during his tenure at the restaurant. And I certainly think that's not definitely not acceptable anymore today, but the kind of treatment, just the way he spoke to people, I don't think is, is tolerable anymore. And I don't know that, um, it's appreciated. However, in Charlie's, and I don't want to defend him either for that behavior, because I do think through today's lens, it is abusive on some level. But I will say, when you think about all the things that can go wrong at a restaurant, from the minute the ingredients arrive at the back door, or forgetting about that, how about when they're grown at the farm, right? All the way until the dishes are, are set in front of diners. There are so many points along that path where it could go wrong. And imagine having to do that hundreds of times a night every night for 25 years at the level that Charlie was doing, where so much is out of your control. I really don't blame him for doing whatever he needed to do to ensure the level of excellence that he expected was being delivered day in and day out. He also was dyslexic, which I think played a big part in how he managed the kitchen. He needed things to be organized and run a certain way Otherwise, he himself just couldn't function at the level that he needed to function at. And, and that speaks to the whole idea of empathy and trying to understand where others are coming from so that, so that you do develop a greater appreciation or at least a respect for, for why they are the way they are. Sure. And that kind of gets at 
my last question then, as far as what you hope viewers who come see Love, Charlie, what do you hope they walk away with? Making this movie during the COVID quarantine was really interesting. And it was at a time when a lot of documentaries were coming out that sort of uh, unpacked people's worst moments in their lives. Um, and these are people who were really remarkable in their own fields and were real inspirations to, to legions of fans. I didn't want to make a movie that didn't inspire people. But I also wanted to make a film that um, showed the downside of that relentless pursuit of excellence. And I think what I want people to come away from watching this film is maybe a willingness to ask why. Why are the people in their lives the way they are? Who are they? Um, how can we connect with each other on a deeper level, whether it's writing a postcard or just checking in or you know, personalizing things a little bit more. I think there there is something to be said for the love and care that Charlie showed everyone in his life before he opened the restaurant, and then certainly, you know, the love and care that he poured into his food at the restaurant. And if we could all just be a little more excellent every day in our lives and be more connected and more empathetic, I think the world would be a better place. Well, Rebecca, I really enjoyed the film. I learned a lot. I appreciate you making some time to talk with me. Thanks for having me, Gary. This has been fun. That was Rebecca Halpern. She's the director of the new documentary, Love, Charlie. It's opening in select theaters and will also be available to rent through video on-demand platforms on November 18th. There will be two special screenings with post-film Q&As on Saturday, November 19th and Monday, November 21st at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. You can find more information about the film at oakstreet.pictures. Thanks for tuning in this morning. If you enjoy the art section, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartsection.org. You can listen to past episodes and individual features. They're all there available on demand anytime you want, plus links and pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by dueling critic Carrie Reed. Our other dueler, Jonathan Abarbanel, is off on assignment this week. It was just around this time last year when I saw the Netflix movie Tick, Tick, Boom. The musical biopic is all about theater artist Jonathan Larson. It was directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda and stars Andrew Garfield. I liked the film more than I thought I would. It's reaffirming and inspiring in its depiction of persistence and the feelings of hopelessness that can arise when it feels like you're getting older and farther away from your dreams. The movie also made me want to revisit Rent the next time it came around. We'll fast forward a year and Porchlight Music Theater is presenting a revival of the Pulitzer Prize winning musical that was written by Jonathan Larson. Directed here by Adrian Abel Acevedo. I'm interested to hear what Carrie has to say. 
What did you think of Porchlight's Rent? You know, I kind of feel like sometimes I'm an outlier on this show. There are things about it I like. I've never been an absolute fanatic about it, which seems weird because I think that in within my age cohort, and certainly I'm someone who came of age in the early 90s, although I wasn't living in Alphabet City in New York, you know, so a lot of the story about, you know, the struggling, particularly what HIV AIDS was doing in, in the arts community in particular, should resonate with me. And it does, but I've found in general, my problems with the show have generally related to the book. And it should be noted that Jonathan Larson died, I think, the night before the first preview. And so how much he would have been continuing to work on it, refine it beyond that, is, is obviously a very fair and open question. For those who maybe have been living under a rock since the mid-90s and have never encountered rent, it is the story of a group of friends who are all living in this unheated loft owned by one of their friends who has not been charging them rent, but it's around Christmas and like Scrooge, he's coming around and demanding that they all start paying up past rent. So it's, it's, there's some class conflict. There's um, a whole notion about what gentrification is doing to the, you know, to the East Village at that time. I think part of what I find is kind of an naivete of it is the conflation of people like Mark, who is wants to be a documentarian. He's videotaping a lot of his friends and interviewing them during this during this show. His situation is not that he's generally poor. He just doesn't wish to do a day job. And I think that's always made my hackles go up a little bit because he's not the same as the homeless people, you know, in the vacant lot next door. All of that said, some of those reservations still remain in terms of the politics of rent. But as a production, this Porchlight outing is the strongest I've ever seen of this show. I think some of it comes from it being in a more intimate setting. The Earth Page Center is certainly not, you know, a broken down place, but you do have a sense that it's, you know, it's a more, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a working theater. It's not a glitzy Broadway palace or a downtown, you know, Cadillac palace. So I think that that helped create a closeness to these characters. And the other thing that has happened in this production is that there's a real smart emphasis on the idea of, you know, videotaping, recording, trying to capture your life versus living your life, which is something that Mark struggles with. You know, he is somebody who's more interested in seeing the world behind the camera than being out, in, you know, with his friends. And even though he's with his friends, he, he, he's sort of a distanced person. He's a little bit isolated. This set, which is designed by Ann Davis, features a big backdrop of an old, you know, VHS tape. We see projections of various tapes, including some that are from earlier times in Mark's life that are literally being kind of recorded over, you know, from uh, from an earlier birthday party. He's recording new events in his life over those tapes. So you get that sense of rewriting your history, of trying to hold on to the present, yet also being a little bit distanced from it. And all of that is really, really rich stuff for a show that in some ways, is a, in, its, in its own way, is like a nostalgia show at this point, right? Not that AIDS has gone away but it's not the death sentence necessarily that it certainly was in the early 90s when all of the people in this show knew that they were on borrowed time. Um, that Roger, the rock star, the you know, budding rock star who sings very you know, poignantly about wanting to have one song glory. There's Tom Collins, who's uh, you know, sort of a radical who falls in love with Angel, who is a uh, transgender performance, art- performance artist, drag performer. Um, there's, you know, there's Joanne and and Maureen, who are uh, another couple. Maureen is the performance. It is a real performance artist. There's a lot that's going on here, but I really loved how this production has a sense of immediacy and urgency to it. That it doesn't feel like a museum piece, and I think that that's one of the problems that you could have with this show at this point. So 
ironically or perhaps paradoxically, you know, by leaning into the old-style recordings and the old technology, get a sense of how fresh this show really is. And I think particularly coming out of another pandemic where people were isolated, where people were mostly relating to each other through screens for a good portion of it, there's this nice little undertone of how do we connect? How do we make each day count? How do we kind of help each other along? And I think that's always a lovely message, even if I think sometimes the politics, uh, the class politics of the piece get a little muddled from time to time. Sure. Uh, just fantastic performances throughout. So, yes, I, I even as a non-rent true believer, I was often quite moved by this production. What's the music situation here for this production? The music situation is it's a small ensemble, which is at the back of the theater. If you've been to Porchlight before, you know, the page stage, they don't really have a pit, per se, so they're usually the musicians are a little bit back. It's, um, it's listed as just a four-piece band, two guitars, bass, drums, so very much basic rock you know, rock scoring. And I think that also helps. The voices come through very clearly here. The sound mix is good. I know I said that, I mentioned some of the characters. I really do want to give a shout out to what I think is always the most tender relationship in this. And that's the one between Tom Collins and Angel. Eric Lewis and Josh Pablo Zabo play Tom Collins and Angel. Their relationship is, it's heartfelt, it's heart-wrenching. You know, they're the ones who, amongst all the friends and the bickering and the falling out and the getting back together, they're the ones who are rock solid, who really are there for each other. And more so than in other productions, I felt that Porchlight really centered that and really made us think about what it means to love somebody when you know that they don't have much time left. What does it mean to really take care of each other? And as their, their song puts it, I'll cover you. And they really do cover each other. And by extension, I think that sets a model for the rest of the cast, you know, who are sometimes caught up in their own artistic egos and their own romantic, um, you know, peccadillos as people in their 20s tend to be. But uh, seeing the love that uh, uh, that is so beautifully uh, portrayed by these actors in those roles, I think, locates a really firm, beautiful, beating heart to the entire production. They're always my favorite characters, and this production just sort of underscored for me how how important they really are as the spine of the, of the story. And then really quickly, just because I'm genuinely curious, because I think on the surface, Rent seems like a show that would be right up your alley. What have been some of your issues with previous productions of Rent? And because Larson was so young when he died, he was 36. I mean, he's in my age. I think it felt very much like this is a musical for our age, you know, that it was not just a rock musical. There have been those, but I mean, Hair was for the 60s generation, right? I don't know. What would be the 70s generation? I'm not sure. <laughs> For a portrait of a time and place, Rent was like, this is this is what it's like for us. You know, we're struggling, you know, loving somebody. If you're not careful, you could contract a deadly disease. If you are, you know, if you want to pursue your dreams, well, good luck. We're in late capitalism and gentrification is driving up the rents. <laughs> you know, you won't be able to maybe live that old bohemian dream of moving to New York and getting a little apartment and working to make your dreams come true. I understood all of that. Again, I think it goes back to the idea that is a guy who grew up in the suburbs and his parents apparently still love him and are calling him this would be mark you know and want him to be you know want to be involved in his life it's like but you're not actually on the verge of homelessness you're just a stubborn dude who doesn't want to maybe bite down and do the day jobs that pretty much everybody in my cohort was doing at that time while also trying to pursue their artistic interests you know perhaps that's just a little bit of sour grape <laughs> one, one could easily uh, psychoanalyze that as well 
that, as I said, I think that um, by, by not making Mark so much the focus, this production really, um, really does land on the you know on the seasons of love at the heart of at the heart of the show, as that very famous number that everybody has seen a million times now probably reminds us. The Jonathan Larson story is really fascinating. That's why I think that the film that I opened up talking about, Tick, Tick, Boom, is so interesting. So for folks interested in that, that's on Netflix. Porchlight Music Theater's new production of Rent has been extended through December 11th. I mean, literally the opening night, they pulled a curtain, you know, a screen across at the end, a curtain that, uh, where they projected uh, Jonathan Larson's face to remind us that, you know, the person who created this never even got to see the, uh, the sad irony, right? He never got to see his show go on to this great success that he had worked many, many years, you know, toiling away, working as a waiter, you know, doing all the things that you do in New York theater to try to, you know, stitch things together while he was working on his, on his passion project. All right. Well, it sounds like a, a recommendation from Carrie, even yeah, from somebody. If, if I can recommend it, it's <laughs> not always my favorite show, then I can only imagine how good a time people who love Rent will have with this. If you love Rent, you must see this production. All right. Carrie, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure, Carrie. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section on WGCB. One of the world's leading media organizations sent out its first ever broadcast 100 years ago this week. An estimated few thousand listeners tuned in on November 14, 1922 to hear, quote, This is the British Broadcasting Company, 2LO, stand by for one minute. Those were the first words ever heard on the BBC. The UK media organization officially turns 100 on Monday. A century later, the BBC is considered the largest broadcaster in the world, providing news and programming to people all over the globe. While it has an international presence, the BBC's connection to its home country is unlike anything in the United States. The company was established by a royal charter with a mission to act in the public interest, serving all audiences through the provision of impartial, high-quality, and distinctive output and services which inform, educate, and entertain. The new book, The BBC, A Century on Air, provides a thoughtful and entertaining look at the history of the media organization. It comes from author David Hendy, a retired academic who specializes in broadcast communications. I caught up with Hendy over the phone for a wide-ranging conversation about his book and the current state of the BBC. Obviously, the, the BBC's centennial is a, is a milestone occasion when did you start thinking about writing a, a book about the BBC's long and distinguished history? I suppose, strictly speaking, it was about eight years ago in 2014. That's when I approached the BBC with the idea of a, a single volume history of the BBC. And the idea was that there have already been histories of the BBC. So there's a distinguished historian, Asa Briggs, who's written five monumental volumes of BBC history, a total of over 4,000 pages, and someone else who's written a sixth volume of the official history of the BBC. And I suppose I, I didn't really want to just condense all that, because I thought, you know, condensing nearly 5,000 pages of official history would be breathless. And there's just so much to squeeze in. I mean, if you think about the number of programs the BBC has broadcast over the last 100 years, it's somewhere between 10 and 20 million. We don't know quite how many. 
tens of thousands of people have, have worked for it. And of course, generations of, of people, not just in Britain, but around the world have kind of spent their childhood and adult lives listening to it, watching its programs and so on. So it's, it's, it's a huge vista. And really what I wanted to do was to do something slightly different. Yes, to tell the story of that 100 years through the key events, but but to really give the program makers perspective. I, I had many years ago been a program maker at the BBC before I became an academic historian. And, and to me, it's the program makers that make broadcasting what it is. So I suppose my ambition was just to try and tell that hundred years in a slightly different way, going sort of deep inside the machine, if you like, and, and, and telling a more human story. Because those, those broadcasters, the people who started the BBC and the people who kept it going are fascinating people in themselves. Uh, they're, they're human, they're flesh and blood, they've got ideas, they've got ideals, and they're, they're fallible as well, and that's what makes them so fascinating. Indeed. Even going into it with that idea and being familiar with just how gigantic uh, the BBC is and knowing what's come before as far as uh, documentation, was it still a challenge to get a handle of the scope once you started getting into it and putting the book together? Yes. I mean, it's <laughs> writing about the BBC, studying the BBC is both a privilege and a nightmare. I think that's the best way to describe it. The written archives, for instance, of the BBC are, are a treasure trove. They're, they're vast because the BBC is a, it's an organization which has been stuffed full of creative, articulate people, but it's also got a slightly sort of civil service government kind of mentality, which means it, it minutes everything and records everything in kind of extraordinary detail. So what you've got is is lots and lots of documentation, a hundred years worth of documentation, and that captures everything from the kind of the daily minutiae of program making to grand policy discussions about about the BBC and its place in British life or its relationship with the government and so on. So, And that is both fascinating and a challenge. How do you link the story of the BBC, which links it to big events in the world, the World War, uh, a, a, a general strike, a change of government? How do you link that and the BBC's role in reflecting that and reporting that to the public with the kind of steady flow of normal programs, programs that we, we like and enjoy and are meaningful to us as regular citizens. You have to try and reflect both, but you can't reflect everything. So you, you have to be selective. And in the end, you're trying to tell that big story by zooming in on particular people and particular locations and particular moments. And I suppose it's a bit like, you know, following Aristotle's advice here. You need some sort of unity of time in place. You can't spread yourself too thinly on such a vast canvas or else it becomes too abstract. So, so that was really what was going on in my mind. But what I really wanted to do, I suppose, the, the driving idea was that I wanted to show the BBC-ness of the BBC, if you like. <laughs> I couldn't tell the story of every single department or every single programme. But what I wanted to try and do is to say, well, what is it about this, the British Broadcasting Corporation, that makes it different to just another regular broadcaster, if you like, both in Britain and globally. 
it's fascinating to read about the the dawn of something that's uh, so much a part of our daily lives now back in the the 20s radio broadcasts were this new frontier uh, and so you write in one of the early chapters you know news really wasn't a a focus of the BBC what was programming like those first couple of years in the first few years it was it was fairly ad hoc and sometimes chaotic. John Rees, who was the sort of, if you like, the founding father of the BBC, the first general manager of the BBC and, and brought a, a sort of vision to it, said that when he started the BBC in 1922, there were, as he put it, no sealed orders to open. In other words, broadcasting was pretty new. Um, no one really knew how to do it. Yes, there were radio stations in the United States. And there had been for a couple of years. There were about 350 radio stations operating in the United States by the time the BBC started. So there was a there was a model of how to do it, but the the, the Brits, being the Brits, wanted to be different in some way, and they were a bit anxious about the commercial model, if you like, and competition and what they called chaos in the ether. So they wanted a national coordinated response. But as to what was on air. That was a blank canvas. And the, the the small number of people who started the BBC basically had to kind of make things up. They would uh, they would they didn't have very much news because the newspapers wouldn't let them. They had sketches from plays. They had readings from, from books. They had entertaining kind of comedy sections and, and, and music, people playing the piano in the studio and, and, and so on. They, eventually, as soon as possible, they would have live link-up with with theatres and music halls and music was an important part of uh, those early years and and that's something important to remember because very often the popular image of the BBC is that it was a kind of a rather stiff formal organisation full of uh, dreary talks and and uh, classical music and so on actually that's there was very little news yes there were talks and they covered a whole range of things you might have one one day which is about how to tin sardines or a foggy day in london and then the next day there might be a talk about serious economic policy it was quite a jumble that's probably the best way to say those first few years of programming was like if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with David Hendy, the author of The BBC, A Century on Air. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. So I, I've been an admirer of the BBC for a long time. I have cousins who live in London, and as a teenager, they would send me recordings off of the, the radio of music programs on BBC Radio 1. And then when I started in, in radio, I would work these early shifts in one of the stations I worked at broadcast the BBC News at 4 a.m. here in Chicago, and so I would listen to that every morning. And then several years ago, I made my first trip to, to England, and I was captivated by the BBC television programming. Um, so it's always been uh, an area of interest for me, uh, for my audience of uh, American listeners. There's a real separation between television and radio here. And then when it comes to television, we have our big three legacy networks. Maybe you can provide some perspective on how the BBC's role in England differs from how we do things in America. The key thing to say about the BBC and its sort of place within British life is that, um, of course, it's not it's not a kind of public service broadcaster that is there to plug the gap or to provide 
kinds of programs that the commercial stations provide. The BBC was there first, and it was there right from the beginning, conceived of as a national broadcaster. And and the idea was that if it was not reliant on advertising or, or commercial ratings, and if it was not uh, a state broadcaster, subject perhaps to political interference, then it would be in a privileged position to ensure that the widest range of programs would be available to as many people as possible. That was the the founding ethos, if you like, of the BBC. Quite a democratic one. Um, I mean, in one sense, it was elite because it was saying its task was to bring the best that has been thought and said and done in the world to as many people as possible. And that second part of the equation is the democratic thing. It's not it's not about ring fencing culture or information to those who can afford to subscribe, for instance. It's basically universal access to as many people as possible. It's that idea that in a modern democracy, everyone needed access on the same terms to, to culture and information and ideas and so on. So that that notion is really what underpins the BBC ever since and why it is, if you like, central to, to national life. Now, of course, as the century has progressed, there are more and more competitors, not just new commercial channels and satellite broadcasting and, and platforms like Netflix and Disney Plus and, and so on. Of course, in that sense, the BBC has to compete as one of many. But it's still within Britain, for instance, uh, a, an institution where over 90% of the population use it every week. It's there, it's present in terms of radio, television, schools broadcasting, educational broadcasting. It, it supports orchestras, it runs live festivals, uh, it's got a very big internet presence. So BBC Online is just about the most used uh, website in, in Britain. And of course, it's got a vast world service that broadcasts around the world to approaching now 500 million listeners. So it doesn't feel marginal, if you like, to British life. It's something where almost everyone has some experience of using the BBC. And because of that, of course, it's, it becomes a lightning rod as well for all sorts of national arguments and, and anxieties about, you know, the culture war or about politics or whatever. They're reflected on the BBC and they're fought through on the BBC. So even though it enjoys this national status, it also, in a sense, suffers from this national status by being a bit of a whipping boy for, for all sorts of political debates. So growing uh, partisan and political divides here in the, the U.S. have led to deep divisions in how people consume media. And I, I get the sense from reading your book and from other things that for a long time the BBC stayed above the fray in terms of UK politics. I've been reading about efforts uh, to change the way the organization is funded, uh, the way the BBC is funded, uh, led by the Conservative Party. Thoughts on how the BBC has navigated the current political landscape? Someone once said that the BBC has crisis in its bones, and it's true. Right from 1922, it's kind of had run-ins with politicians, politicians from both the main, main parties. But there is a fundamental difference, I think, with what happened under Labour 
governments and what hun- happens under conservative governments. Labour governments tend to be disappointed with the BBC because it doesn't do enough in, in their minds to compensate for the, the right-wing bias of most newspapers in Britain. The Conservatives have tended to have a kind of deeper ideological distrust of the BBC. There's something suspiciously collectivist or welfareist about it, this sort of do-gooding kind of idea. And so I think that, you know, there has been that enduring suspicion. And the danger for the BBC, the vulnerability of the BBC, is that even though it is a public corporation, it does not belong to the government or the state. It is ours. It's the people's. Um, the government has a whip hand, which is that periodically, every 10 years or so, it gets to set the level of the license fee. So the license fee is the main source of income for the BBC. And it's one of those examples of where, because the whole, or pretty well the whole population, pitches in and contributes towards it, then you get a lot for less outlay, if you like. So the BBC is a kind of well-resourced organisation that can do a lot and can make programmes of high quality and so on. And that's, that's part of what sustained it, that kind of that treasure chest of resource. But if you want to weaken the BBC or you have an issue with the BBC and you're in power, the government can freeze the licence fee or even uh, reduce the licence fee or even threaten to end it altogether and move to a new model like subscription and so on. That is what the current Conservative government are, are contemplating. They've already frozen it. They're threatening to end the license fee. They're looking at other models like subscription. Now, subscription seems sensible in many ways. Other media organisations use it. But if the BBC's mission is to provide the best and the fullest range of programmes for as many people as possible, for everyone, ideally, then subscription really undermines that whole ethos. We're in a dangerous moment for the BBC, and politics does matter. You mentioned, you, you talked earlier about the, the founding ethos and mentioned John Reith, uh, and I think it was him that, that promoted this idea of giving audiences not necessarily what they wanted, but what they needed. Uh, does that philosophy still exist at the BBC? I think it's probably the case that the BBC tries to give people what they want and what they might need, in other words, to do both. Because, I mean, there is something kind of, as it, as it were, slightly patronising, isn't there? The idea of a group of people who run a broadcasting organisation claiming to know what's good for people. On the other hand, the way in which kind of Reith and his generation thought about it was as a kind of a gift, if you like, which is, look, there is a world of culture that a lot of people have not had access to. How many people in 1922 had been able to go to the opera or a classical music concert or to actually witness and listen to senior politicians talk uh, about politics? Broadcasting, in their view, was about opening the gate to all of that to as many people as possible. And it wasn't really about defining what from a narrow range people had, but about guaranteeing that everyone had access to the widest possible range. That was the idea. And that kind of difference, that tension between giving people what and giving people what they need, 
was worked through by the BBC on the basis that the market assumes that supply will meet demand, that if people want something, it will be supplied. And the BBC has always suggested that actually it's not quite like that in reality. It's not quite like that because sometimes the market just <laughs> jumps to over-providing more and more of the same thing. And that people might not know what they want if it doesn't yet exist. So the BBC had this idea that actually instead of demand prompting supply, that supply could change demand. That if they, if they broadcast the good stuff, if you like, people would come to like it and appreciate it because it might be unfamiliar and, and, and unsettling at first, but gradually you got used to it and so on. And I mean, this was a kind of noble vision, perhaps an unrealistic vision. But those people who started the BBC in the 1920s believed in their heart, genuinely, that over time everyone would come to love Beethoven. And this might well be decades even a hundred years or so down the line. But that's what they thought broadcasting could do. Now, I think the BBC these days is more realistic about that, but it does try and run what I would call a mixed economy. It includes programmes of, of simple delight and pleasure that people just love and can enjoy. And it also includes in the schedule programmes that are challenging and perhaps unsettling uh, and not necessarily what people want, but they might grow to like. And actually, you know, some of the big hits in the BBC's history are unexpected and weren't asked for. Uh, one of the BBC's comedy series, The Office, which I know has been remade in America. No one asked for The Office, but it was a kind of a, a wonderful creative idea that took off. The current hit series, Strictly Come Dancing, which I think has been reversioned around the world as things like Dancing with the Stars and so on, that was an unexpected, unanticipated success. No one at the start of the 21st century thought a dancing programme based on ballroom dancing would be a hit, and yet it was. So I think that's one of the, the interesting and uh, most exciting things about broadcasting and broadcasting history is you actually don't ever really know what's going to succeed and what's going to fail. And I should mention, uh, we just scratched the, the surface. Uh, there's really intriguing parts about the BBC's role during World War II uh, and then uh, how it evolved and the, the current Queen Elizabeth uh, and her coronation. There's, there's so much here. We couldn't get into it all. But David, I appreciate you coming on. And I, I really, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Great. I enjoyed it very much myself. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> That was David Hendy. He's the author of the new book, The BBC, A Century on Air. I found the book fascinating, really interesting stuff if you're interested in media or just history. It's The BBC, A Century on Air. I'm the sun and the air. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again 
next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.